Welcome to the ASCA Viewpoints Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the student conduct profession in higher education. I'm Jill Creighton, your Viewpoints host. Hey listeners, I have a couple of show notes for you before we dig into today's conversation. First, I want to let you know that this will be the last episode for two weeks because we're going to be taking a week off in observance of the U.S. American Thanksgiving holiday. So our next episode will not drop until 1128. I also want to take a moment to congratulate our newly elected ASCA Board of Directors for the 1819 year. In the president-elect seat, we have Sean Callagher from Quinnipiac University. Our new treasurer will be Christina Liang from Cornell University. Our new director of membership is Christina Parle from the University of Kansas. Our new director of diversity and inclusion will be Katika Harris from Tarrant Community College, sorry, Tarrant County College, rather, and Katika will be transitioning from her current seat as director for community colleges. And taking over the director of community colleges seat will be Aaron Logan from Rose State University. So congratulations to all of you, and I'm very much looking forward to having you as part of the boardroom. This episode today features Dr. Donna Haynes, and Donna has some expertise and wrote her doctoral dissertation on working with student veterans. So I thought this would be a good episode to feature given that the U.S. American holiday of Veterans Day just passed us on November 11th. Donna has been the Dean of Students at Big Bend Community College for the last couple of years. That's in Moses Lake, Washington. Prior to that position, she was the Assistant Dean of Students at Pikes Peak Community College in Colorado Springs, Colorado. But in her role as Dean of Students, or sorry, Dean of Student Services at Big Bend Community College, she provides leadership and direction for the operations and activities of student services departments at Big Bend. She earned her bachelor's degree in administration and a master's degree in organizational administration from Central Michigan University and a master's degree in secondary education from the University of Phoenix. She completed her doctorate degree in leadership from Creighton University. And again, today you're going to hear us really talk about her expertise related to student veterans and student conduct and student veterans and student affairs in general. I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to the podcast, Donna Haynes. Donna is the Dean of Students at Big Bend Community College in Moses Lake, Washington. Welcome. Thank you so, so much, Jill. It's a pleasure to be here. And we are looking forward to speaking with you today about veteran students. Um, It is Veterans Day week, and we are uh, turning our attention to the folks that have helped serve our country and how we can look towards you a little bit for leadership and understanding how we we might go about better serving our veteran students in our conduct processes. But before we jump into all of that, I was hoping you could just tell us, how did you end up at Big Bend? What was your journey there? Gosh, um, that's a really, really great question. So I ended up here, I am going to call it by serendipity. Uh, I have a very kind of eclectic background, and I found myself actually working at um, an institution in Colorado where I landed in conduct again by a happy accident and um, fell in love with the work. And that combined with my other skills in, in the student services realm led me to 
apply and throw my, my name into the hat for the uh, Dean of Student Services position when it opened at Big Bend. And I was selected and I've been here a little more than a year. So um, now I still do conduct work. That is um, a tenth of my actual responsibilities. And then I also have the opportunity to work with the other areas in student services that support student education without, you know, being the formal instruction, um, serving that formal instruction role. And what else is in your portfolio today? Oh, dear. Uh, Let's see. So we have two TRIO grants, Upward Bound and Student Support Services. We have the admissions uh, registrar function, financial aid, which uh, includes, that's where we work to serve our student veterans at this institution, testing, student uh, student support services, um, student success center, I apologize. So that's where we do a lot of our uh, supplemental instruction and tutoring support for students. Let's see. I'm walking in my head through the various offices, outreach and recruitment, counseling, and disability support services. And I am hopeful that I didn't miss anybody on my team because I absolutely treasure the work that they do, the service that they offer to our students. I love hearing about uh, what else is in folks' portfolios today because I think that a lot of our conduct officers, particularly in the entry and mid-level, kind of wonder if we'll ever be able to kind of break up and out of the portfolio of only student conduct. And we all have transferable skills, but I think it's great to hear that uh, yourself and earlier this season we featured an episode with Joyce Esther, who is now uh, a college president. And so I think it's, it's just... Oh, wow hopeful for folks to hear that there is a life after conduct if you want it. <laughs> it's absolutely true, but I, I, I would say I'm not post-conduct. Um, I'm really and truly in the thick of it. Um, and so I, I'm, I'm still happy to say that. <laughs> I would miss it, I think. Excellent. Well, and you know, we love doing the work and that's why we're still here. It is extraordinarily hard work, particularly in the climate of, of today's political era, whatever part of the political era you engage with or kind of fall on the side of. And I think it's also a really interesting time to be uh, discussing student veterans issues, given that, you know, we are still kind of seeing this influx of student veterans coming in on GI bills. Um, I think that Mm -hmm. as we watch the war in Afghanistan wind down a bit. We're seeing less of a peak than we did a couple years ago. Um, But it's still kind of an area where I feel like student affairs as an entire profession hasn't quite gotten a handle on how best to serve those students. So where do you where do we start with student veterans? Gosh, I, you know, from my perspective, I would never dream to call myself an expert. I am a person who lives life from a very curious lens. And so when I have questions about something, I love to investigate and learn more. And so I think that my interest in serving student veterans is really deeply rooted in in wanting to understand better the people who've meant a lot in my life. I um, was a military spouse. I have a son who's currently active duty, and I've had the privilege of working with student veterans in uh, different, different capacities and uh, different institutions, and so I have a true heart. And so when I saw 
in the conduct world, we started seeing across the profession, I think, and even in um, our collaborative relationships, I remember uh, going to one of the Nibita conferences, and we started seeing that we were having more topics around what's happening for our student veterans when they land on our campuses. And what I noticed was that um, I didn't see a whole lot oriented to the community college experience. And that is such a unique experience. And when you add that with the uniqueness that the student veteran brings to to that environment, it, it's fascinating. Um, so I wanted to understand. We were seeing at least what I was hearing from my colleagues across the board and seeing in different areas uh, across campus that there was an uptick, or at least it seemed anecdotally that there was an uptick in um, disciplinary concerns that involved student veterans. And so I wanted to understand what the underlying causes could be. So that was the focus. This was mm -hmm. your topic area for your dissertation, correct? It was. It was. And I loved it. What can you tell <laughs> us about your research? Um, so I did a qualitative study because, um, as I mentioned, I hadn't seen a whole lot of focus on student disciplinary concerns related to student veterans in the community college setting. And so I wanted to really collect some rich data and be able to just mine for a little bit um, what, what student veterans thought was causing some of the concern. And um, it was, I, so I had the privilege to get to interview nine individuals, and I was actually just going through, um, going through that that work and refreshing my my memory. It was fascinating to me because I had a mix of women and men who had served. I had ethnic diversity represented. I. Um, definitely across political spectrums, across um, age band. And it was so very interesting to see how similar, how similar were the responses, irrespective of what we kind of standardly look at as, as um, ways to create difference. You know, we talk about generational gaps or um, Gosh, especially in the workplace, we hear all the time about the millennials and Gen Xers, and you know, we we put these labels on people to readily identify how they're different from the other. But what I found in my research was that the student veterans, there was a lot of similarity in the experiences. It always tickled me uh, when I interviewed. Um, interviewed a candidate who said, you know, and, and the, the person was in their 20s, you know, they referred to everybody around them as a kid. Mm. And um, it wasn't meant in, in a disparaging way. It was really, you know, I was talking with people who, who felt aged by their experiences in the military. And um, they, that was, that was their lens. And it just fascinated me because I, you know, I think about how many times how many times might I think of somebody in a similar way, you know, and, and what puts me in that space? And so, yeah, I, I found it, um, it was a fun experience. I think that idea of viewing one's peers as kids or children is, is a fascinating one because I think it tells us a lot about 
uh, our student veterans' lived experiences, but also about our student veterans' view on on how they may enter a classroom or a social space. Mm. So, yeah, when you're looking at um, kind of the stories that you uncovered and uh, the stories you were able to tell on behalf of, of those that you were working with, what were some of those core thematic pieces that came as a result? Oh, gosh. Okay, so... Core themes, as far as, well, gosh, I'm trying to figure out which way we want to go with this, Um, because I asked them to identify some things for me to help me make sure I wasn't kind of superimposing myself on their experience. Um, And so, you know, I, I thought it was very interesting that the bulk of them came away saying, you know, the military culture was extraordinarily structured. Um, and, and that wasn't, that wasn't surprising. Um, it, it was surprising to me, those people who didn't say that it was really structured because of my experience. I, and I, I was a person who as a spouse really appreciated this structure. Um, I found it fascinating that they spoke, uh, the bulk of them really spoke about the distinct communication style that coincides with military culture. And um, that communication style, one of the one of the participants really helped me to understand why knowing that there's a distinct communication style in military culture could be an important factor as we're talking about helping people transition into the higher ed experience, Uh, particularly the participant indicated that in the military, and because this person also had deployment experience, communication tended to happen in bullets, in in short bursts, and uh, when we get to the college setting, we talk to people in paragraphs and pages. And when you're asking somebody to transition and to understand you when you're dealing with something as fundamental as language, um, I think it's important for us to be just really cognizant of the fact that that we need to speak to our audience and make sure that, that we're all participating in the conversation. So how do you translate that into the student conduct context? Oh, gosh. That is a fantastic question. By the time a student lands in conduct, there's been such a, it's um, like jumping into a cold shower. It's been such a shock that um, for me, what I love about the conduct process is that it tends to, it tends to be one where there's opportunity to be real. And so the conversation can flow from one human to another without, um, and there's space to learn how to communicate in the midst of those, those conversations so that people are understood and that learning occurs. So one of the things that I think about a lot when we have, or when I've personally worked with student veterans in the conduct process is they've been allowed by their own volition and and by their station in life previously to live their own lives as adults. Yes, it's a structured life, um, as you previously mm-hmm. mentioned. Um, but in a lot of ways, there's 
there's unique freedoms being an adult in the mm-hmm. military versus being treated as kind of a transitional adult as a first year student in college. So as you think about things like addressing student veterans for alcohol consumption because they're under 21, they may have been deployed for our country, but mm. they can't have a beer yet. So um, right. how do you how do you reconcile those things in a conversation that you're having with a student veteran? That's interesting. Um, and one, a, a challenge that I haven't had to face in the community college setting. Typically, our students are a bit more non-traditional. So it's not to say that I haven't had the substance conversations. I, I live in a marijuana state. So um, more frequently, I get to have conversations about pot than I do about alcohol, but um, not typically with veterans so far. So I, I don't have a great que- answer for that question. I When I, when I think about... Um, being an adult in a space and being mature, more often than not, the struggles that I've seen is um, where a student veteran has been a leader by virtue of their career. They have supervised a number of people and been responsible for their safety. And to then go into a classroom where it seems that people are kind of cutting up or, or, you know, not necessarily minding the instructor and, and um, it, it looks and feels like chaos to them sometimes, um, that seems to be where we have the conversation more about, I know that this was what you got to do as a, you know, an important part of the structure and, and safety of your unit or however um, the, the supervisory structure kind of looked. But in this, in this structure, the instructor is the one in charge. It's their universe. And so we need to talk about how you get to participate in this, in this environment in a way that's going to feel healthy and respectful for everybody who's involved. So... And what have you found? Now that I've said no alcohol, we'll have to have a couple of those here later. (laughs) I think you just jinxed it. (laughs) Yeah, thanks, thanks. (laughs) So we like to say, you know, uh, you say that it's been a very quiet Friday afternoon, and then all of a sudden everything happens at 4 (laughs) o'clock. Oh. Same idea, same idea. Uh, well, through, through your research and through your personal experiences as both uh, a military spouse and a military mother, and through your lens as a practitioner who works with veteran students, what would you like to most share from your civilian lens about what student conduct professionals can really benefit from based on your lived experiences? Oh, my goodness. I think the biggest gift to a conduct practitioner is the capacity to understand and however you get that understanding. If you are a person who is hearing and that's how you, you gather information in those conduct settings, then then great. If, if you have another means of gathering that understanding, great. I think that the most powerful tool that we have in the conduct realm is the capacity to listen. And as we listen and as we learn how to retail our own communication styles to be potentially more summary oriented or more bulleted, as you um, as you mentioned previously, what uh, what did you learn through your research about what student veterans most wished 
conduct practitioners or student affairs practitioners in general wanted us to know about their experiences and, and their lives on campus? Great question. You know, they, they kind of went a bit more broad. Bless them. They were, they were very generous. Um, what they wanted from us in student services, student affairs, they want us to give them a roadmap to success. They know that they're capable, and they want us to know that they know that they're capable, that um, we're, we're not talking about people who need they're, – they're, they're proud. They've done good work, and they've done hard work that none of us, unless we've served in that capacity, will really be able to understand. We can appreciate from a distance, but I've never served in that capacity, so I, I won't ever be able to understand what it is to experience the world in the way that they have. But they want it. They want a roadmap. They know how to, to to negotiate maps and processes because that is military life. Bureaucracy processes. They're good at that. They want us to provide clear direction. That was the overarching uh, request from them. They um, second to that would have liked some help with understanding how their GI Bill benefits actually play out on campus. Um, sometimes we give them a 30,000-foot view, and um, to my experience, military people like to be able to set out a plan. And so um, the 30,000-foot view is not always as constructive as we might think it, it could be for, for a student veteran who's coming into the higher education experience. How has all of that information changed the way that you approach student services as a dean? Oh, geez. So I am a huge on, on equity. And when I find that we've got invisible processes, you know, the, the secret process that um, you find out if you know the right person or if you're related to the right person or whatever, um, that is extraordinarily inequitable. And so... When I'm looking at processes, the question I ask my team is, okay, so how would somebody know this? How would they know? And if you and I are looking at each other and we couldn't figure it out, we have to make sure that we are using clear language that means something to the people we're speaking with. It's really helping us right now, especially on my team, we are looking at our processes and trying to figure out ways to make sure that we are being clear communicators and that we don't have, you know, secret, secret routes to get through. I think those secret routes are uh, something that we we face in student conduct with or without uh, specialized populations. Uh, I think a lot of us take a look at our codes every year and go, hmm, can I figure this out as the person who is, you know, enforcing this code or writing this code, let alone mm -hmm. figure it out if I'm a student who has, you know, minimal experience navigating university systems? Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes with the code, so I, I'm, you know, still, I'm, I'm still new to Washington State, so I am learning the processes here. And some, gosh, sometimes we don't have as much flexibility in expressing those codes or the behavioral expect, expectations as we would like. And so then the question I ask myself is, all right, so now I've, I've, 
put all this legalese in a letter and I've invited this person for this conversation, how do I help them understand what's actually happening here? And how do I make sure that they get to retain their dignity in a process that is of utmost importance? Making sure that people feel welcome in my space is a big deal. Um, my office, which unfortunately, well, maybe fortunately at the moment, because I've got quite a few projects on at the moment. But, um, you know, I have my colored pencils and I have toys and I have kinetic sand and bubbles and coloring books. Um, there are comfortable chairs so that people who come in can come in and maybe that's one less barrier I have to overcome. So I think that's a, an interesting way of looking at kind of your role in working with students is, uh, in general, not just with specialized populations, but to say, you know, my space should be a place where students feel welcome. Um, and I think, in, you know, the benefit of being at a community college is that, you know, you have a much more localized population as well. So yeah. you're not usually getting out-of-state students coming to a regional community college. Um, oh, so, we do. We have athletics oh, and do. dorms. Uh huh. Yes. So, um, <laughs> so I am. I, I definitely get a taste of that as well. So, when you think about like a kind of recentering into this uh, this idea of student conduct practitioners really focusing on learning better uh, to serve student veterans, where would you send folks to do more reading, to do more training, to have better conversations, et cetera? Oh, my goodness. Um, I would first send them to talk to the student veterans on their campuses because they're the, the local experts. They know what they need and, and what they want. One of the things I will say in the course of my study that was so surprising was that Almost every one of the participants thanked me for asking them questions about their experiences because nobody had ever asked them. And I thought that was a wee bit heartbreaking because if we're trying to serve people, I think we really need to take their, their actual words and experiences into consideration as we're building our service plans. Um, let's see, gosh, there were so many wonderful, wonderful resources here. Um, I apologize. I'm going to make this a little bit bigger here. So I'm looking at my screen on my phone. The Student Veterans of America do some research. Um, and, and so I definitely did take a look at, at their work. I also looked at what happens for international students in higher ed because you're talking about acculturating people from, you know, bringing them from one culture to another and, and how does that process happen for people? How have we done it? I looked at um, what happens for um, black students at historically white institutions um, let's see. So to do that, let's see. I For the international students, I looked at Olivas and Lee. Um, oh, gosh. I remember the, 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 the article that I'd read. It was called A Fly in the Ointment. And I cannot right now get the, the author's names to pop into mind. Um, but that was related to the experiences black students um, shared about their times on uh, historically white campuses. 
Demers in 2011 did some research on what it looks like when student veterans return. And so um, the focus there was that building the community around reintegration. So what does that look like? And I would argue and I think would have support from my colleagues that our colleges, our universities, are communities. Um, Certainly. And when we when we look at our communities and we look at the structures of, of how we have historically looked at higher education, and particularly in the last 20 years or so, um, you know, I'm realizing as we have this conversation that, you know, it, we're still having conversations with the language of us and them. And yeah. that's unfortunate, but it's how we have framed a lot of higher education and it doesn't lend itself from a language space and therefore kind of a cerebral and theoretical space for inclusion. It's more about subgroups. And I think that is a disservice to our students. It's a disservice to us as professionals. Um, So I think it's an interesting thing to just draw attention to and figure out how do we change that? And that's not a question that you and I can answer in a one (laughs) podcast episode. (laughs) No. And I, I, part of me wonders if we need to change it or if there's a way to embrace both. I mean, all of us bring our whole selves to work every day. All of us bring our whole selves to our campuses, whether we're students or we're some form of of, of staff. Um, And so all of those component parts make up the person that you encounter. So I don't, I don't know if we, if, if, if it's necessarily a bad thing to recognize that there may be, some value in in looking at those pieces of us that that make us unique while also making sure to consider the comprehensive. I think there's beautiful tension in that space that challenges us to be excellent practitioners. And and there's there's always room. There's that continuous improvement model, right? In our work, every every student meeting okay, what what can I do? How can I shape this interaction? How can I make sure that this person retains their dignity, even if the decision is that they have to be separated from this institution because this is no longer an okay place for them to be? Um, I think I think there's appropriate challenge there for us. It takes me back to the Ed Stoner quote from long ago where he states that, in the conduct process, our goal is to treat each student with care, respect, honor, and dignity. Mm-hmm. Uh, wherever they are coming from, wherever they may be going after their conduct process is concluded, care, respect, honor, and dignity are kind of that tenant piece of, of how we are as a profession and how we should remain. Um, so I really appreciate that mm-hmm. you've incorporated that to your philosophy as well. Yeah, I, I don't know. I think um, student conduct work has made me, I think, a better human being. I think student conduct work when you start to consider the lives that we get to touch. A lot of times, I don't know if this happens to you, but it's happened to me when people figure out that conduct is a piece of my role. Oh, you work with bad people. I'm like, no, <laughs> I don't work with bad people. I mean, I, I work with people who, who had a bad day. I tend to get to meet people after one of their worst days, you know, um, and that's not a bad people problem. It is a it is a people problem, most definitely, but it's not a bad person issue. I am still waiting to meet a person who's never messed up. And so um, walking into the work with humility, walking into the work, recognizing that for our student veterans, some of our processes 
I mean, we could write them all. I don't speak Greek. Um, so, you know, for me, you could you could write the whole thing and the whole experience in Greek. And, and I would have an equal opportunity to understand and thrive in that in that setting. And um, if we really are about equity, if we really are about um, making sure that our students have a safe wonderful environments that are conducive to learning than recognizing that they're coming to us with those unique communication needs and that they do actually, if we could also enter the work with the assumption that they do want to be successful, I think that would help us. I very much appreciate how our conversation has evolved over the last half hour to be about a more holistic approach to student-centered practice uh, in student conduct, because I think really that's what all of our work boils down to. Yeah, I I love it. I do love it. I I keep thinking, I feel like I I just need to say more about the vets, and I, I, I don't want to do any disservice to them um, because I was so, so grateful for them. I, I kept, uh, I'm, I'm going back and forth and thinking about, you know, what it is that they wanted from us. Yeah, they want the roadmap, but they also, they have some expectations about what that community college experience, you know, for, for my purposes, what the community college experience would look like. And um, I think maybe it, it could be valuable to share because they didn't actually want or expect much. <laughs> and I think that's probably true of most of us as humans. We don't really expect much. They wanted to be able to fit in. They wanted to, and, and however that was defined for them. Um, I would say a lot of them weren't necessarily club joiners, but they were active in the college community when they could find a way to fit in. So they wanted to fit in, They appreciate structure. They want, if they're walking into a classroom, they want the instructor to be in charge. They really, really appreciated, at least those that I had the opportunity to interview, they appreciated those boundaries. And they also had an expectation that people who had the opportunity to get an education would manage their behavior. It was quite funny to me that I think only one of them knew that there was a code of conduct they they were like we we just we're supposed to just behave right like aren't people just supposed to behave and they said okay so though what does that mean how do you know which standard is the right one in this context and that that fueled some fantastic conversations and i think um maybe implicitly what I came away from those conversations with was that they were prepared to have those in-depth conversations. So even though they had been taking in information in, in shots and bursts and bullets and, you know, um, when they had the opportunity when to, to flex those muscles, they were up to the task. I think that's a fascinating insight. Um, but I also think it's really funny that only one in nine of your participants had actually had awareness of the code, because I think that's actually a higher ratio than many of our students at our main populations. <laughs> right? I mean, who, who sits around reading that stuff? And, and usually, right, I get to meet people. Um, yeah, I get to meet people once they've gotten trouble. Like nobody, nobody ever wants to know me. And, um, I don't know why I think I'm quite lovely, but, uh, students really, really don't want to develop relationships with me. Um, but they sometimes have that opportunity through the conduct process. And I am extraordinarily grateful. 
Well, thank you so much for sharing your insights, Donna. I like to ask all of our guests, what are you reading right now? What do you recommend? (laughs) So at the moment, I actually have a few books going on because sometimes I can be a wee bit mercurial as far as my reading tastes go. So at the moment, I am rereading Lean Mean 13, which is a Stephanie Plum book by Janet Ivanovich. I um, have been listening to, um, gosh, is it uh, Thich Han, uh, related to kind of recentering and making sure that I am staying in the moment and so specifically pieces every step um, because sometimes I can... I can just get way beyond myself and then um, finished last night Pecan Pies and Homicides, which is a cozy mystery about pie shops by Ellery Adams. So I'm all over the place. <laughs> You're a murder, murder mystery fanatic, it sounds like. <laughs> Apparently. I don't know what it is at the moment. You know, it'll change <laughs> and I'll be into romance or something. But yeah, that's where I am for the moment. So Janet Ivanovich, she's the uh, one for the money author, is that right? Yes, yes. I get I get her mixed up with, uh, I think it's Sue Grafton, the A is for whatever. Yes, yes and I've for, never read those. Uh, I think the last I, I had seen one was a, as a reference on the TV show The Office, so, you know. Oh my uh, gosh. <laughs> Well, Donna, if uh, folks want to reach you after our conversation today, how can they get a hold of you? Gosh, if someone wants to reach me after the conversation, I am happy to connect via my email. And you can reach me at Donna, and that is D, like David, A, W, like whiskey, N, like Nancy, A, H, like hotel, at big, B-I-G, bend, like bend your knee, B-E-N-D, dot E-D-U. Excellent. Um, And I I do appreciate kind of our shared journeys through central Washington and parts (laughs) of Colorado. Uh, Donna and I share journeys to Colorado Springs, Moses Lake, Washington, and other obscure remote places that most folks have not heard of. Absolutely. And yet here are the the amazing connection through ASCA. And I cannot tell you how much ASCA means to me. So I am thankful for your service to our community. And thank you for your service to the listeners. I think they're going to, I hope they appreciate uh, our conversation today. Uh, And listeners, as always, if you'd like to comment or get a hold of us at the podcast, you can reach us at email or on email rather at ascapodcast at gmail.com. That's A-S-C-A-P-O-D-C-A-S-T at gmail.com. Or you can catch us on Twitter at ascapodcast. And Dr. Haynes, thank you so much today for sharing your viewpoint. It's been a joy and delight, and please thank a veteran. Take care and have a wonderful day. In two weeks on the ASCA Viewpoints podcast, we welcome Alyssa Stoner-Reddy and Janelle Briscoe. Both Alyssa and Janelle operate one-person student conduct offices, meaning that they are the only person at their institution who's dedicated to full-time student conduct work. So we're going to have conversations with them about what it's like to manage a one-person shop and some of the challenges in areas where they found success and how to operate those one-person shops. I hope you come back and join us.
This episode was produced and hosted by Jill Creighton, that's me, co-produced, edited, and mixed by Colleen Mater. Special thanks to New York University's Office of Student Conduct and Community Standards for allowing us the time and space to create this project. If you're enjoying the podcast, we ask that you please like, rate, and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps others discover us and helps us become more visible in the general podcasting community. If you have suggestions for featured guests or would like to be featured on the podcast yourself, please feel free to reach out to us on Twitter at ASCA Podcast or by email at ASCA Podcast at gmail.com.